Oh, he responded all right. Donald Trump's take on the subpoena by the January 6th committee. The lead starts right now. 14 pages. Trump gives the January 6th committee an earful as the panel tries to legally compel the former president to testify, but he never addresses the million-dollar question. Plus, debate night in one of the most competitive Senate races in the country. The high-profile Republican help that Herschel Walker is getting after weeks of dealing with an abortion scandal. And CNN on the record with one of the three jurors who voted against the death penalty for the gunman behind the Parkland massacre. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper, and we begin with the politics lead and former President Trump's response to the January 6th committee. A long letter posted to his Truth Social site makes no mention of whether he'll comply with a subpoena the committee plans to issue. In this, Trump re-airs a lot of grievances and lies. He repeats false claims about winning the 2020 election. He blames Democrats for failing to protect the Capitol on January 6th. He bashes the committee for what he calls very poor television ratings. And naturally, he brags about the size of his rally crowd on January 6th, even going so far as to include photos. All of this after yesterday's final committee hearing before the midterms. The panel revealing new evidence that Trump knew he lost the election, but refused to publicly admit it. We also learned the Secret Service knew about threats of violence at least 10 days prior to January 6th. And there's also the stunning new footage obtained exclusively by CNN of lawmakers fleeing to safety and begging officials across the government for help. Tonight on AC360, you'll see new portions of that video. But first this hour, CNN's Jessica Schneider on Trump's response and the jarring new clarity into those hours during the Capitol attack. The former president sent a 14-page letter to the January 6th Select Committee after members voted to issue him a subpoena for testimony and documents Thursday. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. But Donald Trump made zero mention of the subpoena and let the question of whether he'll comply with it linger. Trump calling the whole investigation a charade and witch hunt while doubling down on his 2020 election lies. Committee members are leaving the door open to holding him in contempt if he ignores their subpoena. A few of the former president's you know, closest advisors who decided to, to snub the committee. There are consequences. All this as new revelations continue to emerge about what led to the January 6th insurrection, including video exclusively obtained by CNN. They're just breaking windows. It shows never-before-seen moments when lawmakers fled violent rioters rushing the Capitol to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election for President Joe Biden. And it gives the first up-close look at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's realization that the Hill was close to being shut down that day. And it shows how she and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, along with House and Senate leadership from both sides of the aisle, were desperately trying to regain control of the Capitol from a safe location a couple miles away. Get the attorney general. Why don't you get the president to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? Answer my question. And I'm just talking to Governor Northam. And what he said is they sent 200 uh, state police 
and a unit of the National Guard. They rallied resources from local, state, and federal agencies to clear the Capitol so certification could continue, eventually calling the Pentagon for more troops. They're in one hell of a hurry, you understand? Finally, it was Trump's own vice president who wrote out the attack in the Capitol's parking garage who called Pelosi with the all clear. They believe that the House and the Senate will be able uh, to reconvene in roughly an hour. And the next move from the committee will be to formally issue a subpoena to former President Trump. If he doesn't comply, the committee could then pursue a legal fight to compel him to appear or the full House could vote to hold him in contempt. And then, Brianna, the Justice Department would have to decide whether or not to prosecute, something that would probably be very unlikely, given the fact that they have not moved forward with criminal charges for two top Trump aides, Dan Scavino and Mark Meadows, who did refuse to comply with their subpoenas. Very good point. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much for that report. Democratic Congresswoman and January 6th committee member Zoe Lofgren is with us now live. Congresswoman, thank you so much for making the time. Um, First, I wanted to ask you about this footage where we see of leadership, specifically Democratic leadership mostly in this video. How long have have, have you had this footage, if I may ask? And I do ask because there's a question about whether you could have released this sooner so it didn't appear to be politically beneficial to Democrats and specifically Speaker Pelosi? Well, um, we've had it for some time, uh, but we didn't have the rights to use it. Uh, And so that's been negotiated. But let me just say this. I thought Speaker Pelosi's uh, action was certainly more presidential than Mr. Trump's, but she wasn't alone. You can see in these pictures that Mitch McConnell... Uh, was taking responsibility. Uh, Mr. Scalise uh, was there uh, trying to bring order along with Chuck Schumer. So it was bipartisan uh, among the congressional leaders to try and take some responsibility while the president watched the riot unfold on TV. The rights, was that determined by her daughter, the documentarian? Uh, No, it was... uh, Others, But I'm not going to get into all of that. Our lawyers could tell you a lot more about it than I am. But we now uh, have the rights. And I think CNN has obtained some rights to show more than we were able to. So I also I want to get your response to something that a former Trump administration official, Gavin Smith, who has been very critical of Donald Trump, something that he told CNN this morning. Here it is. In my time working for Donald Trump, one thing that I learned is Simply, Donald Trump can't avoid a show. So if the committee were to agree to carry this on national television, I'm just not convinced that he wouldn't show up for simply the fact that he could say he had the best ratings, you know, all the above, all the things that Donald Trump likes to say. So, yeah, I do think that there's an instance. There's a question of will he? I'm not really sure. Does he want to? Yes, I think he does. Is, is that something the committee would agree to, to carry his testimony on national television? We have asked him to appear. I don't think the subpoena has been sent uh, this morning, but we've authorized it. And not just his appearance, we also have a subpoena for documents from him. So we're looking forward. I noticed, you know, this this letter that he sent, uh, kind of a rant, uh, reiterating, uh, you know, false claims and, you know, complaining that we didn't show enough pictures of how big 
his crowd was. I mean, we did show the crowd attacking the police, uh, but never once did he say he would come in and talk to us. And in fact, he just attacked the right of the committee to exist. So, you know, maybe he'll respond. I don't know. But from the tone of his letter, I'm a little skeptical. He should come in. Uh, he has a responsibility, not to the committee, to the American people to come in and take some responsibility for what he did. You're right. He avoids the question, the all-important question here. Would you nationally televise it, though, if he would come in? I have. We've not even had that discussion. But first, we have to see, will he come in? And, uh, you know, based on his letter where he discusses, what does he mean by the unselect committee? Uh, it's just, you know, with all caps and repeats of the election lie. So uh, let's get an indication and then we'll work out the details. So, um, you know, it seems clear that even if he refuses to testify, you don't have time to hold him in contempt. Is that how you see it? Well, we would have time to vote a contempt referral. Um, we don't have time uh, in the remaining time in this Congress to engage in extensive civil litigation to enforce. Uh, you know, he is known as someone who uses the courts uh, for delay purposes. And uh, he's done that repeatedly throughout his life. I mean, not just as president. So, you know, a civil enforcement uh, would would extend way beyond the length of this Congress. But certainly, you know, we could do a referral to the Department of Justice. Doesn't mean we will. Um, for uh, contempt. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. You bet. Now, that subpoena from the January 6th committee is not even the worst of Trump's worries right now, according to a person who knows him well, plus a startling arrest, an elementary school teacher with a kill list, and who was on it, according to police. And a ripple effect on extreme weather, the harmful impact natural disasters are having on students in America. And we are back with our politics lead and the ever-gathering legal and investigative storms brewing around former President Trump's personal, financial, and political worlds. A subpoena from the January 6th committee wasn't even the worst part of his week. Let's talk more about that with former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer and former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree. So, Tom, former President Trump has responded to what the January 6th committee uh, has said he wrote a 14th, we assume it was him, a 14-page document that does not clarify if he's going to comply with this intended subpoena. He also repeats his fraudulent claims about the 2020 election, uh, that it was stolen. What did you think of this response? <laughs> it was a crazy response. Honestly, it, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, he's not engaging on the legal substance. He's not discussing the legal merits of the subpoena or anything like that. He's basically repeating his attacks on the January 6th committee, which again, time and a place for that. But in a legal response letter like this, it was very out of place. I don't think there's any chance that he will comply with the subpoena. And frankly, I think it's going to be difficult for the committee to try to enforce this subpoena in court, given the time horizon ahead. What did you think? Well, I, I think it's very consistent with everything he's done for the last you know, six years in terms of everything is a sideshow and, and it's to be turned into something about Donald Trump. And so and I think that was the game. There's also there's a moment in this new footage, which I know that you've seen, 
that was obtained exclusively by CNN. You have the Democratic leaders, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, who are angrily grilling then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. Here it is. Will you ask the president to make a statement to ask them to leave the Capitol? No, no, no. Please answer my question. Answer my question. Don, you're the former deputy AG. What did you think hearing that discussion? Well, I, I think it's pretty hard to draw too many conclusions about um, what the, the, for, the what Mr. Rosen should have been doing or was doing. I, th- I think this is a situation when the heat of the moment where people are really distressed and they're trying to get something to happen. And none of the people there are in a position to make the things happen that needed to happen. So I don't know what to make of it, frankly. I'm not prepared to say who was at fault among that group. I think the people at fault were others than the people on, on that particular phone call. The, the committee's investigation is happening at the same time as the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump. CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig, who is a former federal and state prosecutor, has written this. He says, it is humiliating for DOJ to wind up in this position relative to the committee, given that prosecutors have vastly superior investigative tools at their disposal. The Justice Department, unlike Congress, can execute search warrants, obtain wiretaps, issue grand jury subpoenas, the real kind that is, and use the threat of prison time to flip cooperators. Yet the committee has surged ahead of DOJ. It's like a guy driving a Tesla getting lapped by a kid pedaling a big wheel. Do you think that that's fair criticism? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly there is a sense out there that the committee is going at a faster pace than the Justice Department. The Justice Department's saying follow-up. It's lagging behind the committee. At the same time, keep in mind, the Justice Department and a congressional committee operate in totally different ways. The congressional committee loves the spotlight. They love putting witnesses up there. They love these primetime events where they can show the American people the fruits of their investigation. The Justice Department can't do anything of that. It labors in secrecy. It contacts witnesses. It collects evidence. But its work is kept secret and concealed unless and until there's an indictment. That's when they have their day in court and that's when they put their cards on the table. DOJ isn't confined, obviously, by the timeline of elections either, right, which this committee certainly is or by the length of a uh, a Congress. Is that playing into this? I mean, do you think it's fair to have this criticism of what DOJ is doing? I I don't. I mean, I I think that uh, I think it's a very unfair criticism. And I actually think that it's kind of hard to evaluate this case and the way it's being handled as compared with any other case that's out there. The challenges that Merrick Garland faced when he got in included the challenges of trying to restore the Justice Department to a position of public respect after the total abuse that it was subjected to under Bill Barr. And he has done, I think, ultimately a very effective job of creating confidence that he at least is not operating it for political reasons. Now, the question is, and, and liberals in particular have raised the question, well, is he getting the job done in terms of going after the people who did these terrible things? And I think, you know, obviously the returns are not in yet. But I think the reality is that we're going to find that he will, while maintaining an apolitical approach to this situation, get the job done. And I think his commitment to the rule of law and to securing, he said how many times that no person is above the law when people say, are you going to indict Donald Trump? And he says, no person is above the law. That's a pretty clear answer in terms of where it is he is headed. And 
The idea that we're going to make fun of the department because it's not putting on the sort of public demonstration of the facts when, as, as, as uh, Tom says, you, you can't. Uh, there's no way in the world the Justice Department can do that. I think it's very unfair. Maybe damned if you do, damned if you don't, a little bit with the Justice Department. Um, Don and Tom, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Ahead, the candidate known as Dr. Oz, his response when asked if he'd ever talk to his patients the way his campaign has talked about John Fetterman's health, his opponent, who of course had a stroke. In our politics lead, a high-stakes moment in a race that could decide control of the Senate. Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker take the stage tonight for their one and only debate. For Walker, a political newcomer, this debate comes as his campaign has been dogged with controversy. CNN's Eva McKend is in Savannah, Georgia, ahead of the face-off. So Eva, Walker's abortion scandal has been a major storyline recently in this race, and that could lead to some fireworks tonight. You know, Brianna, it could, but I would be surprised, especially given how Senator Warnock has responded to this controversy the last two weeks. It's just not his temperament. But you are absolutely right. Walker has been dogged by these allegations the last two weeks that he paid for a former girlfriend's abortion. And that, of course, is in contrast with his very hardline anti-abortion position today. I'm curious to see if he offers any evidence tonight to refute those allegations in a more fulsome way. Uh, But aside from that, uh, really, this debate also about the issues of importance to Georgians, whether that be public safety, uh, the economy, health care. And I'm interested to see how Walker and Warnock contrast their very, very different positions on policy. You know, uh, Walker, sometimes he's meandering on the campaign trail. It's hard to get a sense of his uh, policy positions. He has an opportunity tonight uh, if he understands and has a mastery of the issues to show Georgians that. Now, for his part, he has really downplayed um, his uh, his performance, uh, saying that he's not that smart. But CNN has learned that Walker, like any former athlete, has done quite a bit of preparation for tonight uh, with the likes of Senator Lindsey Graham, Newt Gingrich, and others. Early voting, Brianna, begins in this state on Monday. All right. Eva McKen for us in Savannah, Georgia. Thank you so much for that report. All right. Let's discuss this. So interesting. Eva's talking to her sources and Senator Warnock, Abby, you know, sounds like he's going to go high. He's not going to go low and sort of wallow in this story about abortion. Uh, What do you think of that? I think it's pretty clear that Democrats um, in Georgia think that the best way to play this situation is to focus less on the issue of abortion, which, by the way, Warnock supports abortion rights. So I think it would be tough for him to sort of attack someone for, uh, you know, a woman having an abortion. But the other part that I think they think is more damaging is Herschel Walker's overall conduct, just the story after story about his treatment of a former, you know, uh, mother of one of his children, uh, the abuse allegations that he faces, uh, just the simple fact that all of these women even exist, that he has all of these children, that he's not acknowledged or raised. Democrats from outside groups to, to the Warnock campaign to surrogates um, are focusing on that. And I think that tells you a lot that they don't think that the abortion part of this is their way to really bring voters into their camp at the moment. It's about the hypocrisy. Right. It's about the hypocrisy. Is that something that is going to resonate with voters or do you think that's already baked in in this? 
Well, I think it might resonate with swing voters. I, of course, among the base of the people who are you know, enthusiastic supporters of his, they're going to stick with him. And we've seen this you know, time and time again. We've seen it with Donald Trump. And, and we've seen the way Herschel Walker has dealt with this is very Trump-like and sort of denying, 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 no matter what the evidence shows you. But I don't think that you know, Warnock needs to get down in the mud. He doesn't, he should re- let the moderator ask these kinds of questions. I don't think there's any reason for him to focus on that. It's more of an opportunity for him, him to demonstrate that he actually knows a lot about the issues and that, that he would be a good senator. You know, uh, for Herschel Walker to come out and say, I'm not that smart to sort of set the low bar. I mean, that's, that's, that's too low to actually be actually have the position that he's running for, right? So it's like he said it a little too low. But I think to your point, it is about the hypocrisy issue. And the reason why abortion fits into that is because one of the arguments Democrats are making is that a lot of the folks and a lot of the men who would take away a woman's right to choose when it's convenient for them would go ahead and urge an abortion or pay for an abortion or send their daughters to another state to get an abortion. So it does fit into the hypocrisy issue there. And then secondly, like Abby said, on the treatment of the child that was uh, fathered out of wedlock, according to the Daily Beast story, he, he did have visitation rights, but didn't go, uh, didn't see that child. And again, this is a core issue, right, that it has been for decades in the GOP of family values. And there's been a lot of grousing for many, many years about absent fathers. Uh, he really is the perfect embodiment of all of these arguments um, and, and, and in a hypocritical way. Yeah. You know, the phrase of the year is candidate quality. And I think Herschel Walker's behavior is so, it's just perfect because it, it sets Georgians up, Republican Georgians, I should be honest, to say, I don't want to really turn up for this guy. And I think tonight, what we have to hear from Warnock is this sort of uh, depiction of, of Walker as unfit to serve, somebody who is not familiar with the issues, somebody who doesn't have a passion for policymaking. So we'll, so why send him to the highest chamber in the land to do so? I think it'll be a delicate dance tonight. I'll be really interested to see that balance again between the behavioral and the substance, because you've got to make Republican Georgians want to turn out. So Warnock's got to say some problematic stuff that, again, makes Republicans want to demonize Democrats and turn out to vote against Warnock. Really interesting development in Pennsylvania today because you saw Oz Mehmet doing this interview with NBC and he actually tried to distance himself from how his campaign has mocked John Fetterman over his health. Here's the clip. Why would you allow your campaign to mock him like that? I have tremendous compassion for what John Fetterman has gone through. I mean, not only do I, as a doctor, appreciate the challenges, but I know his specific ailment because it's especially the area of mine. Would you ever talk to your patients like this? No. That's a change. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been saying, I feel like I've been saying this for many months. This has always been a key weakness for uh, Dr. Oz because he, from the beginning, has been trying to figure out how do they deal with John Fetterman's health as an issue. It is harder for him because he is a physician and also because... He's running in the state of Pennsylvania, and I think Fetterman has made a gamble um, based on his understanding of the state that if you're going around saying to voters in the state of Pennsylvania, oh, if you're, you're, you're too fat, you're too unhealthy, why didn't you go to the doctor, you had a heart attack, you had a stroke, what's wrong with you, that's not going to play very well. And I think Oz has been on both sides of that, which shows a lot of indecision about how they need to handle that. And it's harder because he is a doctor and nobody wants their doctor lecturing them about their health. But it is his campaign. 
So, you know, his campaign is doing this, and I don't know how he's not responsible for that. I mean, he's I mean, doing he, it, too. Yeah, but, but I mean, the really nasty stuff in the last couple of days, mm. I mean, for him to say, I wouldn't talk to my patients this way, but my camp- it's okay for my campaign to do it. I mean, if you wouldn't talk to your patients this way, then why is, why is this okay? I don't think it's a good development that the issue of health is an issue again in this race at all. Because if you look at the fact that the polls have been tightening, it's been as Oz has been making all of these arguments on other issues and the health issue had kind of faded. He was talking about crime. You have, of course, the national issues of inflation. But this is a race that uh, Democrats were really hoping would stay much more wide than it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, polls show that a lot of voters already know that Fetterman has these health issues. They may, maybe they have those health issues themselves. And so it's probably not a good development if this swings back towards focusing on this health issue over some yeah. of the others. We've all known someone who has had a stroke, right? Um, so CNN has obtained just what is remarkable footage of congressional leaders scrambling on January 6th to get law enforcement and the military to the Capitol during the attack. So let's play a little bit of this. This is what Republican lawmakers have been saying about this response before this new video came out. Was Speaker Pelosi involved in the decision to delay National Guard assistance on January 6th? Jim Banks just raised some very serious questions that should be answered by the January 6th commission, but they're not. And they're not for a very specific reason, and that's because Nancy Pelosi doesn't want those questions to be answered. Scalise is suggesting here that Pelosi actually delayed the National Guard response, even as we see in the video. He was actually there. He was there as she was trying to mobilize. Here we see him. There he is right there in that unmistakable mask. What do you think about this? You know, the hypocrisy is on display for all the world to see. These these people were scared. McConnell was there. Senator Thune was there. These people are like rocking back and forth like what is going on? And there you see Nancy Pelosi calmly handling this. So whatever you think of her politics, I saw a woman that had it together and wanted to do the best for herself and her colleagues as well. It didn't matter what their partisan stripes were. So I don't know how Republicans are going to gain this now. They're going to go back, I think, to the whole illegitimacy of this committee. It's a show trial. This committee is the worst. Why did it even happen? It's happening on your taxpayer dollars. We're not going to let it happen anymore. And by the way, there were two fake Republicans on it. Well, as a Cheney and Kinzinger Republican, I got to be honest with you, I don't think these Republicans are going to be able to work their way out of the box. Scalise is just not sure what to game out now. They can't. There's visual evidence. Thank you guys so much for the conversation. And I do want to make two programming notes. You can watch Abby Phillip on Inside Politics Sunday morning. That is at 8 a.m. Eastern. And here in just a few hours, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders in prime time. He'll be talking midterms and more on CNN Tonight with Jake Tapper. That is coming up at 9 o'clock Eastern. So next, hear from one of the three jurors who voted against the death penalty in the Parkland massacre and why she says the day of deliberations was one of the worst days of her life. In our national lead, we are following the surprise and outrage after a Florida jury recommended life in prison rather than a death sentence for Nicholas Cruz. He murdered 17 people during the 2018 massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Today, CNN's Layla Santiago sat down with one of the three jurors who voted for a life sentence. And Layla, she told you that she was undecided until the very end. Right. 
Right, said that it was not an easy decision to make by any means. You know, it was a very insightful conversation as she says she had no regrets, but did wake up feeling somewhat anxious from it all this morning. She talked about how it was a difficult decision to make, difficult to see the family struggling inside and the toll that it took on her own mental health. Specifically, she talked about one of the toughest days during the trial before deliberations about going to that 1200 building in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, which has essentially remained the same since that awful day in 2018. Listen to how she described it. It was horrific, uh, to say the least. It was like going to a museum that you never wanted to go to, that you would never in your life buy tickets to go to. That's what it, what it was like. Um, and at that point, we had viewed so much video um, where you could walk through the school and know whose remains were there. It was, it, it, it was one of the worst days of my life. I even, I even, when I got home, I even had glass stuck in my shoes from that day. And then came the deliberations, which she says led to some very tense moments, especially on that second day when they returned, the day that the verdict was actually announced, saying it got so tense, she felt that some were even about to have a panic attack, that they had to ask for time to go out, get some air, go for a walk. Here's what she wants people who were not in that deliberation room to know. We collectively agreed that no matter where we fell um, on the first day that we wanted to take a night and really digest, um, get in our own thoughts um, with where, where we were. Um, so I'm happy that we did that. And um, for me, even writing back to the courtroom, I was still undecided until the, the very, very end. In some of the small talk, um, I heard comments like, we're going to let the families down. I heard comments like, oh, you know, we have to put a stance for Florida. In other words, you, you, you know, you can't come here and do that and get away with it. But when you go back to the instructions, those were things that we could not consider. A family member of a victim stood in front of you right now. What would you say? I would say I'm, I'm tremendously sorry for your loss. I am also sorry that, and in my opinion, I think the, the law failed them. Um, I think that saying that uh, the jury disappointed them or the jury did this, um, I, 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 just, I just disagree on that wording. I think that the Florida law um, disappointed them. And she talked about this taking such a mental toll on her that she actually plans to go seek therapy after this. Also acknowledged that the pain of the families who are also still very traumatized by this. We heard from them yesterday immediately after the verdict. I should mention, Brianna, that today before the judge, one juror did report that uh, they felt threatened. That went before the judge. The judge has now turned this over to local law enforcement for investigation. Leila Santiago, thank you so much for that report live for us from Florida. And also international lead officials at a school near Chicago say there's no need for extra police presence, even though a teacher arrested this week admitted she had a kill list that contained students' names. One student says the teacher told her, quote, she wanted to choke us and she wanted to kill herself. The student went to the principal who says the teacher admitted she had such a list and was sent home. Police say they weren't notified until four hours later. They took the teacher into custody without incident. 
A vital high-tech tool on the battlefields of Ukraine, CNN getting access to the incredible images that it's providing to Ukrainian commanders. In our world lead, a top U.S. official tells CNN Russia is burning through its stockpile of high-tech weapons and is desperately trying to buy parts for new ones. At the same time, Elon Musk's SpaceX is asking the Pentagon to start paying tens of millions of dollars per month to keep Ukrainian forces supplied with its Starlink service. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh shows us why it's essential. Night is when the push for the South busies. Humvees speed the roads. Incendiary munitions light up the night. That dusk, the skies alight with air defences around the Russian-held, heavily defended town of Snihirivka, just three miles south of here. It's the gateway to the big prize, the city of Kherson, where Russia is already evacuating civilians and low on supplies. They say that the shelling has been noticeably less over the past month and a half, probably because of the damage done to supply lines the Russians need to bring munitions towards the front here. Radio chatter they've intercepted between Russians here is of ammo running out and conscripts fleeing. In three days, moving around the front lines here, it's clear Ukraine's movement forwards has met a hardened Russian defence, even if they are low on ammo. On this tree line to Snihirivka's west, the Russian paratroopers are under a mile away. New trenches are being dug and camouflage laid out. Nature is about to turn on both sides equally. So obviously in the winter, the cover of the trees will be gone. And so there's a race here to prepare new positions so they can't be seen by Russian drones in the winter. A mix of the oldest type of warfare and oven heating bunk beds underground here. Place for their rifles. This for five people. This is where they're going to be during the winter if they're still here. And the newest this is an antenna for Starlink. Billionaire Elon Musk's satellite internet service sending a live stream of drone footage of the artillery battle here. This is where that signal is sent. Meet Fugas, his nickname, a farmer turned drone warfare commander. And then the lethal impact of a billionaire's internet service and store-bought drones, a hit on a Russian vehicle. The black smoke under the mouse cursor. They show us video of several impacts that day. They know they will be hit back. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Nisnihirivka, Ukraine. And our thanks to Nick Payton Walsh for that report. Here in the U.S., a constant disruption in American schools caused by a man-made crisis. Next. 
In the national lead, Lee County, Florida, one of the area's hardest hit by Hurricane Ian, plans to start reopening most but not all of its schools on Monday. But those buildings must first meet critical safety checks. As CNN's Renee Marsh reports, Lee County is just one recent example where extreme weather brought on by the climate crisis is having an extreme impact on education. My goodness gracious. Melissa Wright sees the destruction at her 10-year-old son Zane's school for the first time. That's the sign he stands in for the first day of school every year. Fort Myers Beach Elementary is one block from the ocean. Hurricane Ian's powerful winds tore down walls and its storm surge approached the top of the school doors, destroying nearly everything inside. Losing that school is... It's probably what I've cried about the most. It's been more than two weeks and the entire Lee County School District remains shut down. We do have schools that remain in a high needs category, suffering significant damage. He already said this year was tougher for him than most, so I am worried about him falling behind. Lee County schools are emblematic of a growing trend. The climate crisis disrupting school systems nationwide for months and in some cases years. In California, wildfires have been the leading cause of school closures. From 2018 to 2019, a record 2,295 schools closed. Last year in Louisiana, Hurricane Ida, a devastating Category 4 storm, ripped off roofs and destroyed schools. More than a year later, two schools for close to 900 students are still inoperable. And in Tennessee, 17 inches of rain fell in 24 hours, flooding Waverly Elementary and Junior High School. More than a year later, some students are using an auditorium with partitions for classrooms. A government study found that since 2017, more than 300 presidentially declared major disasters have occurred across all 50 states and U.S. territories, with devastating effects on K-12 schools, including trauma and mental health issues, lost in instructional time and financial strain, something Waverly, Tennessee schools know well. After the flood there, students' test scores lagged behind the rest of the state. Some of our our staff and teachers lost their homes. They lost their loved ones. They lost, uh, you know, and their classrooms. So uh, mentally wise, that has put a toll on them. As schools struggle to recuperate from extreme weather, experts say they must better understand their future risk and rebuild more resilient structures. Our public schools right now, they received a D plus on America's infrastructure report card. Wow. Until then, when extreme weather strikes, all that is lost will undoubtedly also include quality instructional time in school. Embriana, several school systems tell me that the mental health of students and teachers who are coping with personal losses as they try to resume learning is a major issue. Also, supply chain issues have made rebuilding schools a drawn out process. So students are in this temporary learning environment for extremely long stretches of time, Brianna. So many challenges they're dealing with. Renee, thank you so much for that report. Sure. Sunday on State of the Union, face-offs in two battleground states, the candidates in Arizona's race for governor, plus the candidates in Colorado's race for the Senate. That is Sunday morning at 9 and again at noon. And this just breaking a major development in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago case. Details right now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.